This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today's guest is a proper hyphenate and a multidisciplinary artist. He is an actor, musician, comic, television writer, author of plays, books, and cartoons, including SpongeBob SquarePants, Cat Dog, The Adventures of Jimmy Neutron Boy Genius, and Stan Lee's Superhero Kindergarten. He is also the creator and author of the YA book series, Middle School Bites. This guy is talent with a capital T and as versatile and sharp as a Swiss army knife. Coming up is my conversation with the very clever Stephen Banks. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. Hello, everybody. It's always fun to talk with Pat Hazel, folks. If you get the chance, do it. <laughs> well, let me start with a high compliment to you. Those who don't know who you are, you were really one of the very early one-man shows that I saw when I moved to L.A., which was Stephen Banks' Home Entertainment Center. I was dropped into a theater on Cahuenga, and wow, it was amazing to watch you showcase all of your talents, your musical and comedy talents and nuttiness. But it really opened my eyes to the idea of getting rid of the comedy club atmosphere, the opening act. All of those things were like, wait a minute, this can be done? And that show itself, many, many people point back to as a place where they realize, oh, they can showcase all their talents in one night without being cast in another play if they have the discipline. So let's just start there. When did you decide to take that on? Had you done other one-person shows prior or was that sort of your formal entree into doing a full evening one-man thing no what certainly wasn't my entree i had done others before that turned out to be the most successful i had done another one called music mimicry and madness or something it was like a sort of a one-person sketch show and the other shows i had done were that one where i did this crazy thing with the abraham lincoln robot from disney going crazy I did a one-man version of the movie King Kong where I was a gorilla suit and they were throwing paper airplanes at me and I was battling little toys and things. Uh, I had also done another elaborate one-person show called Sid and Ernie where I played these two different characters with masks, no dialogue, and it was sort of a competition between one who could do everything. He could play instruments and do magic tricks and the other, poor Sid, could not do anything. And I used two masks made by the Great Don Post Studios, which I bought at Disneyland. They were two ghost figures from the Haunted Mansion. And man, that was a sweaty show to do. But I did that for several years. It was a good show. I was very proud of that show. Based very much in European type of clown. The clown Grok, who did a musical act, I thought he was really interesting. Dimitri, the Swiss clown who performed Moomin was a huge influence, the Swiss Mime Mask Theater, and I sort of molded it all together. And I was, did very quick change. I'd go off as one and come on as the other with an assistant holding the mask, and I would switch them as fast as I could. So you did sort of have the illusion there were two people. And then we'd do tricks where one would peek on stage every once in a while on the other. But yeah, so then I came to Home Entertainment Center, which I didn't really know what I was going to do. This guy who ran the theater in the Coingo, owned the theater, had built this set for a play that had bombed, and it had a hyper-realistic kitchen set, very much sort of like David Mammoth, sort of like um, True West. And he opened the curtain, he said, well, I don't know, you can use this. And I looked, and there was a stove, there was a sink, there was a refrigerator, and I said, wow, does the oven work? He goes, yeah, we could probably make it work. And I ended up using, well, the stove with a a hot plate underneath it to bake the cookies because I baked the cookies live on stage when I did Home Entertainment Center and you could smell them. Oh, I love that. At intermission or at the end of the show? Was it intermission or inter end of the show where? There was no intermission. No, it was straight through. At the end of the show, people walked out. I was out there in the lobby. And the reason it looked like a hotel lobby is because they had done the play room service. I would stand out there and pass out cookies as people left. Well, here's what's great about Home Entertainment Center. You start with this fabulous ukulele solo and then when the answering machine goes off it's kind of like the old-timey movies where a bunch of information gets set off on the maid on the telephone which is 
the answering machine sets in motion the fact that it's your anniversary and that something is due to your boss in 45 minutes. And it's great that all of these plot points intersect with your best friend who you haven't seen in years is arriving in town and can't reach you. So from a storytelling standpoint, it makes it more than a variety showcase. Yeah, well, my background, I have a big theater background. So to me, it, Home Entertainment Center is really a one-person play. I worked for a very long time writing it as a script, as a play, and I needed to get that exposition and set up everything on the answering machine, which we don't have anymore, but it served its purpose to introduce all the conflicts, set up the other characters, and get things going. It was a fast, efficient way to do it. And while you were hearing the machines, I was getting out of my work clothes, a suit, and getting into my pajamas and my robe. So things were happening while I did that, but it couldn't be too distracting. You had to make sure that the audience heard what the setup was going on. Yeah, it was a great balance. But the other thing was that then all of the various talents, because you're a multi-instrumentalist and you play the drums and you play the guitar and you do all of these different things in a really unique way, I would just encourage the listener to go to watch it on, you said Amazon Prime? Yeah, it's on Amazon Prime if you have that. If you don't have that, you can also watch it on uh, YouTube for free. But Amazon Prime, the quality is a little bit better. I think YouTube, though, have, may have the Penn and Teller introduction. I did see that on the YouTube, but it also seemed like there were scrambles of it all over YouTube in little pieces and so forth. But but it... Yeah, yeah, watch the whole thing together. It's only 59 minutes, folks. It's worth the thin price of admission these days to watch it on that. So what I did like about it, though, is that it, it did showcase all of these talents. Now, I'm curious because I can tell that you are a proper musician. How many instruments do you play in life, like where you feel like you're very good at an instrument? Well, I don't know if I feel very good at anything. Drums, I began when I trained when I was in sixth grade, only because I thought, oh, these look easier than guitar or piano. The drums I did the longest. Then I played ukulele as a little kid because my mom played it very basically. I didn't really pick up guitar until after I graduated from high school. I first had a tenor guitar, four strings. Once again, I thought, oh, this will be easier. It's only four strings. I'm so lazy. Then I graduated to the six string guitar. So drums and guitar were the main thing. But if you play guitar, you can sort of figure out bass guitar. And then also I did love to fool around with the piano. So I did do that. Then I discovered, hey, I can get a tenor banjo, which has four strings, but I tuned it like a guitar, which you're not supposed to do, but I did it, damn it. <laughs> you're such a rebel. You're a, what they call a banjo rebel in the business. Yes, banjo rebel. Yeah, and then harmonica, I fiddled around with that. So I was able to sort of fool people that they really thought I actually could play all these different instruments. Prior to that, I should throw in, I did junior high and high school assemblies for, oh God, 15 years. And if you can entertain a gymnasium full with no lights, no focus, full of junior high or high school kids, I learned do it or die. I learned to do a, it was an entertainment type assembly with using a bunch of different instruments and comedy. I mean, it wasn't really stand up. heavily influenced by Steve Martin and a little bit of Andy Kaufman, but heavily influenced by Steve Martin. And I did songs, I juggle, I did all sorts of crazy stuff, very fast paced. It requires sort of a manic attention getting style to work for that. I would equate it to street performing. Yeah, true, close to that. I did a bit of street performing and there, man, you really got to grab people's attention, but it was get their attention, keep it. As Noel Coward said, don't be boring. And so, I mean, it was a real mishmash of my theater background, street shows I saw that I did, stand-up comedians, uh, performers, the great Wally Bogue from Disneyland, who's in the Guinness Book of World Records, huge influence, and later I was lucky enough to become his friend. He was the first live comedian that Steve Martin ever saw, huge influence. The reason Steve Martin did Balloons is because of Wally Bogue, which he readily admits. In his great book, Born Standing Up, Steve Martin, you should all read, he talks about that. And actually, Steve spoke, sent a video at Wally's memorial service, and it was interesting. He said as a kid, he always hoped oh, someday Wally Bogue's going to get sick and I'm going to get to go. And they're going to go, does anyone know his act? And I'm going to go, I can do it. And then he'd run up and do it. But it was really interesting. Steve 
sort of spontaneously sang the song that Wally sang in the show. And he choked up as he sang it, which was great because Steve Martin is usually a guy that's pretty much in control. And that was a huge influence on Steve and other people, but also on me. There were so many things that Steve did well. He was philosophical. He was trying, he was cutting a rug where others hadn't gone in terms of the unusual. I think people take for granted how much of an impact he had on the world of comedy. Oh, definitely. He did that thing of really silly, stupid, if you want to call it, but also really smart, very intellectual, which like, you know, Monty Python did the same thing. A lot of times people just work in one vein, but he really did both. And I just, man, I thought it was great. And his books, I was just rereading some of Cruel Shoes. Man, those are good stories. The Born Standing Up book, it was about his stand-up career, essentially from the impetus of it to when he was playing 4,000, 5,000 seat places and alone on a bus. And it was really, really interesting to watch a guy like that set it down, like move to film and do that. I happen to be working on a Carl Reiner project right now. And Carl directed so many of those Steve movies, uh, The Jerk and Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid and Man With Two Brains and All of Me. And finding those creative partnerships with people who open your mind, that allowed Steve really to become a proper matinee idol in a comic sense which was so much more and deeper than what he was doing with the silliness. But even then, it was really groundbreaking. The white suit and the arrow in the head, you look at it now, and you can't really equate it to what he was doing with these little novelty props that shouldn't be selling out an auditorium. He was doing huge, big, 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 big places. <laughs> and I think the way I heard it described in the book, he realized when he looked out and people were wearing the arrow in the heads that they didn't totally get it. Like the fact that they were becoming like him was sort of disappointing that they were in it a little differently as people began to sort of mimic him, I guess. Right. Well, they were shouting out punchlines and stuff. And then he played on that. I was just actually the other day, I heard a thing where he said, I know a lot of people like to come to me and, you know, they want to hear the old routines, but I don't want to do that. I want to get at something new. And if you can't handle that, well, excuse me. So he was commenting on that at the same time. I mean, man, I've been influenced by a lot of people. Well, Dick Van Dyke, for example, I know that you're a big Dick Van Dyke fan. Oh yes, huge. Tell me the influence he had, what kind of influence? Cause you also have a, I would say a agile angular body style like Dick Van Dyke. Well, yeah, and I had nothing to do with that. I'm built like my grandfather and that just happened. But yeah, I really sparked a Dick Van Dyke in his show. And of course I was watching that when it was first on. I was very, very young but he just seemed so cool and he moved so well and he was really funny. And my God, he had a gorgeous wife, meaning Mary Tyler Moore, who also was great. That was like her first true gig. And how great Mary Tyler Moore is amazing, how well they work together. And speaking of Carl Reiner, he said, when they first got together, because I wish I could send them off for a week together so you would really buy them as a couple, but you instantly did. But yeah, Dick that, and then also seeing him in Mary Poppins, and really quickly, my mother knew someone who worked at Mary Poppins and a very good old, very one of their best family friends. One day I was pulled out of school. Hey, come over, they're shooting this movie. We went to Disney Studios, went on the set, the soundstage. They were shooting the one man band sequence of Mary Poppins. So Dick is in with the bass drum and the torn and all this stuff like that. I walked down Cherry Tree Lane, I was a little kid. And at one point he looked over at me and tooted his harmonica, which I thought made my day. And then later, actually, Julie Andrews walked by. She had just like washed her hair and she they said, oh, and that's Julie Andrews. She plays Mary Poppins. But to man, to watch Dick Van Dyke in person do that, sometimes I go, did that really happen? Yes, Stephen, it did happen. But yeah, Dick, huge influence. And then, of course, listening to Bye Bye Birdie over and over. I'm a huge fan of musicals and listening to him do that show the fact that he could sing and dance even though he claims he never took a dance lesson but man he worked his butt off in that step in time number and he does dance let's admit it come on yeah i believe he was doing bye bye birdie on broadway when sheldon leonard took carl reiner to see him because originally the first pilot carl was playing himself and they said we need somebody to play you and boy, what a marriage for them comedically. 
on all fronts. It's sort of the casting and the writing. It's just amazing. And Sheldon Leonard gave him a really interesting piece of advice when he was Sheldon Leonard, the guy, he's in uh, It's Wonderful Life. You'd recognize him. Very successful producer. He told Dick when they started doing the show, he said, you need to modulate your voice more in different tones because you kind of speak at the same thing. So go up. What do you mean I'm going to do? Oh, are you really like that? And Dick said that was like a great piece of advice. And you never know. It was just one little bit, but it worked. Listen to people. If you get a little bit or just an idea, scribble it down, just the act of scribbling it down, either on your phone notes or on a little pad. That helps. I just think it's interesting the amount of people who say to me, one day I'm going to write a screenplay. It's all up here. I got it all up here. It's like, you don't have anything up there, you know? <laughs> well, you might, but get it out of your brain and down on paper, folks. Yeah, I mean, because the thing is, ideas are definitely ethereal. I think it was John Cleese that I heard once say, package your ideas. I may not have used those words, but the idea was put it in something because a joke that you tell at a bar is a stock thing that then somebody tells and it sort of runs away. But if you put an idea, comedic or poetic into something, if you put it in a notebook, if you put it in a screenplay, if you put it in a, a greeting card, if you put it on a bumper sticker, like it becomes a thing. And then you decide what to do with the thing. What is it? And I think it is just a series of containers, whether we're working on a 60-second commercial or we're working on a two-hour screenplay. It's about filling that. And you have done it in so many television shows and animations. And you can tell anybody in the most recent web series that you had there, I read that you wrote all 26 episodes. That, to me, is a lifetime of work to write an episode. It was a challenge in a way. This was for the Stanley's Superhero Kindergarten with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And Basically, it's like sort of kindergarten cop meets a superhero thing. Arnold would play a superhero, not Arnold Schwarzenegger, who had been a superhero, lost his powers. All these little kids got it. And so he taught them kindergarten skills and how to be superheroes. It was really fun to write. It was during the pandemic, and there were like 26 half hours. And I just sort of thought, boy, the challenge. Could I do this? Could I write 22 episodes in what it was, about eight months? And so... It took a lot of focus and concentration. I mean, during that time, I basically just wrote that. I ate, I slept, I went to the bathroom. I would watch a couple hours of TV at night or movies. Only day I took off was Christmas Day. <laughs> but it was just a real challenge, and it was a lot of work, but I really enjoyed doing it. I don't know if anybody's ever done that before. I mean, they talk about, well, he wrote all these things. Probably have, but it was a challenge. This new one, same producers, I just finished this first season of a new show called Shaq's Garage, which is about Shaquille O'Neal. And he's a big car collector and all his cars that are all alive and have personalities because of a funny thing we came up with. And that one, I actually was, there was one other writer on that, but just because of the time, because I was working on other projects, a screenplay and my books and so forth. But some sort of have that challenge. And then you sort of get one person who's really coming up with this singular view that rarely happens in television. I can imagine many of the listeners thinking about those eight or nine months when they completely binged watched Netflix and finished everything on there. Because the pandemic either motivated people or it made you lament the loss of things. We were grieving routine and restaurants and things. Yeah, it, I mean, it was really tough. I was grateful. You know, you use the term luck. I like the term, the harder I work, the more luck I have. There was always an element of luck, timing and so forth. but. I had been doing this for a long time prior to that, so I was prepared to do it. And I mean, it was awful, for, especially live performers, theater, stand-ups, magicians, musicians, all that. Theaters were closed. You could, literally could not do what you do. And it was extremely tough. But I would always, when I would talk to people who were creating things, I'd say, I know this is horrible, but if you can take this opportunity to learn a new skill write that one-man show you did, write that musical, write that idea for a cartoon, write those songs, write that rock opera, whatever the hell it was, in a way you don't want to say, oh, this is a gift. And there were people who did, who just sat and been watching Netflix and didn't do stuff and complain. And there's other, not that there wasn't anything to complain about, there was, but there are other people who did it, who really focused, learned a new skill, learned an instrument and thought, wait a minute, I can do this. A friend of mine made a joke at the beginning 
Elliot Freeman is his name. And he said, boy, Stephen, think at the end of this pandemic, how many bad novels they're going to be. And it's a funny joke, but at the same time, maybe, you know, they're going to be a couple good ones. So you have to sort of grab that moment. And it was fascinating to watch people. And I'll boast a little bit, including my son, who is an Imagineer at Disney and now is working for another company in Nashville, but took that time to learn a new skill that allowed him to animating 3D models. It just opened up, he was a ride programmer, but it opened up his ability to do video games, television, uh, animation, beyond just improve his chances for getting a job. And in troubled times like that, you have to think, okay, is there something I can do? Because time is precious. Use it wisely, folks. Yes. I would also say what I mentioned to people is be proactive instead of reactive. Don't just wait for stuff to happen to you to do something. That was my show. I went, no one was hiring me. So I thought, okay, I better write my own show to show what I can do. And trust me, I had huge, serious doubts doing that show, Home Entertainment Center. I thought, oh man, are people going to look at this and just say, this is just this guy going, oh, look, I can play the drums and the guitar and do this and whatever. And it's just this self-indulgent show that could have been bad. I don't think it was bad. I worked very hard on it and really tried it out in front of the audiences. And by the time we shot the special, I had done the show over 440 times. Well, here's what I can tell anybody, and they'll see it when they watch that. You have glee. There's so much joy. <laughs> in the performing that you're doing, being able to do the Elvis solo and being able to do all of these things that you do. You have a signature Stephen Banks smirk that you know you're getting away with something. And it's kind of a fun thing to witness. Uh, in that particular show, you've designed a chronic procrastinator and the audience absolutely sees themselves in a person who self-sabotages and puts things off and gets distracted because that's a big part of the human condition is choosing the fun thing or the easy thing versus the work thing. So it is a subversive way to hold a mirror up to people who have any kind of work to do and find anything else to do but do it. Right. No, it's true. And it surprised me. I have to admit when I did the show, because basically it's about he hasn't written a speech for his boss and he's trying to write this speech at a typewriter boy shows how old it is and he keeps getting distracted by the toys in his room the musical instruments which are all hidden except for the drums which he doesn't play till the end which is on purpose everything else is behind a sofa or in a drawer so you keep the audience interested oh my god there's a harmonica there's a banjo there's a this but when i first did the show i thought okay people who are my age at that time are going to get it because there's a lot of pop culture references. He has dreams of being a rock star. And so you're doing things about Elvis and Dylan and Van Morrison, et cetera. But I was very pleasantly surprised when I did the show, especially when I was doing it in San Francisco for so long, that older people and even younger people were coming to see it because they were identifying, as you said, with that thing of the procrastination. And anybody get that thing where you're distracted or you put something off, but this character was distracted in a very entertaining way. And so it was great to like, just see that. And I honestly was, I was genuinely surprised. And also it went larger for kids, younger kids, especially watched it on television when I'm doing like the Cowboys and Indians bit where I bring out all these different toys and do this. It's sort of like satirizing performance art, but it's doing a show with Cowboys and Indian toy figures and buffaloes and cows and said the bust of Beethoven. And just for kids, it was very silly. Or when I did the Dylan thing, I'm putting on a wig and this kind of funny nose and dark glasses. And to kids, it just looks silly and you're doing a funny voice. Ugh. But obviously people know it's Bob Dylan. So when it works on those two levels, to me, that's great. It's a, it was a surprise. It was. But I thought, oh, that's right. This does work. You mentioned earlier the writing. So I guess I would like you to, in a professorial way, just give us a little bit of what your writing discipline is. Do you have a sacred space? Do you have a time of day? Is there something that you find where you're either most prolific or that you force yourself to do to get over the hump every week? I think I work better in the morning and sort of in the evening. I usually do it in the morning. But as far as there's no sacred space, I really learned because of it helped the stuff I did in television or just deadlines to write anywhere. I was working on the superhero kindergarten script as I waited in line to get my vaccination in the car. I have written up getting my car repaired 
and I take the script in and was working on this musical that I'm doing the book for. I think you have to learn to write anywhere. Most of the time you have a space. I have an office at home attached to the garage, but I also, after years and years, I did a very interesting thing. I actually rented the space in downtown LA to have a space to actually go to. But I think it's very important to learn. If you just sit and go, the muse is going to come. Someone said, the muse is for amateurs. You got to get down and you have to write. Sometimes it comes better. Many days I'm incredibly frustrated, but let's try it. Let's do it. Maybe I'll throw this out. Maybe I'll just end up with one line. But I do really have a schedule where I get up, meditate, feed the dog, make my coffee, make my toast and go out and I work. If it's a good day, two and a half hours, then go and do my walk, take a break, emails, business, blah, blah, blah. Then once again, in the later afternoon, starting around two after lunch, go in for another session. And I may be working on more things at the same time. I try to put away distractions. I mean, people would say, oh, are you a procrastinator like in that show? And I said, well, if I was, I never would have written that show. But I'm as guilty as anyone. Sometimes I have to put my phone in the other room. I'll see something. I'll get distracted. I'll go down the YouTube rabbit hole occasionally. Right. Yeah, it's terrible. It's like having a open cookie jar. Anytime you have that device there and you go, oh, just I'm just going to check it. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's a wonderful tool for research. I mean, I've used that a lot in this new movie I'm writing right now. There's a thing where there's a Christmas where I wanted to go to a scene from Scrooge, the 1935 version of Christmas Carol, which is the one that's in public domain. So you could use it to go, okay, I, I want to use a scene where the character's watching this. Boom, you go right to it. Or to just look up something. Other In the olden days, you'd have to go to the library, which is where I actually wrote a lot of Home Entertainment Center when I rewrote it and changed it drastically from the first version. I went to the Glendale Main Public Library. I love libraries. And I went in a little cute cubby there, and I've spent about four and a half months rewriting it. The good thing is you make a routine out of it and a ritual out of getting some work done. The walks and, and all of those things are actually quite beneficial when you're stirring the pot of a thought of a scene, but you have to have some clay on the potter's wheel to get anything done. You actually have to build up some foundation of work in order to have some judgment. Yeah, well, you just sit down and have to do it at the end of the week or the pandemic or the month. And you can do things in small increments. I mean, even people have said like, oh, write a novel. They go, well, okay, let's set this bar low. Write one page a day. Anyone can do that. Are you familiar with, I think it was E.B. White that said, you don't have to make the whole journey. You just have to go as far as your headlights. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can do it baby steps, but if you really did write a page a day, at the end of a year, you would have 365 pages. I think I did the math correctly. That's a lot of pages. I mean, that's a book. And I fall in the same trap. Sometimes I do see the whole thing. It's like, oh my God, I can't do this. But well, wait a minute, you're just going to do a piece at a time and then you do it and then suddenly, wow, I have a play. Now, Arthur Miller did write the first act of Death of a Salesman, probably my favorite play, in a day. However, the second act took him forever, but the thing just gushed out. He may have been thinking about it. I'm always, I think, subconsciously thinking about things. When I did Home Entertainment Center, which, as I said, I performed in my pajamas, I was driving along and suddenly I thought, I remembered it was actually a Christmas card from a band that I adore, probably my second favorite band after the Beatles, NRBQ, the New Rhythm and Blues Quartet. And there was a picture of them, the Christmas album, in pajamas. And I thought, oh my God, I had it posted up on my refrigerator. I thought I should do this show in my pajamas. Same thing with the title was from one of my very favorite songwriters in the world, Loudon Wainwright III. The thing you would recognize, which is so ironic, he had a sort of a novelty hit with the song called Dead Skunk. It's a very funny song. However, the rest of his stuff, I just went and saw him again. I've probably seen him 10 times live, is incredible. He has some of the deepest, most provocative, thought-provoking. He's an incredible songwriter. Loudon Wainwright, check him out. He had a song called We're Gonna Move. And there's a line, we got to get the Home Entertainment Center packing up. And I thought, wow, Home Entertainment Center, that's a great, interesting title titles are hard. It tells about the show, yet it's sort of catchy because it really like the place I'm in is sort of like a home entertainment center. It's his home, but it's very entertaining. I think P. 
people like Loudon Wainwright III are people that are discovered by referral. And then you get into that. I got into Bob DeRoe's catalog, not just because he wrote on Schoolhouse Rock, but I was like, man, there's some amazing, great music, funny lyrics, great ideas. And I love those kind of singer-songwriters that can capture emotion and humor in the same cycle. Oh, yeah, yeah. Loudon Wainwright, he's the father of Rufus Wainwright, who became much more famous, probably. He goes very dark, very serious, Loudon does, and just check him out. If there's a compilation thing, uh, see it. But he, he was a big influence as far as like my songwriting and the style and types of songs and just as a performer. And there it was. I'd heard Dead Skunk. I thought it was funny. He was performing in San Francisco. I was staying with my friend Penn Gillette of Penn and Teller in San Francisco, and he was performing. I said, oh, should I go see him? And both Penn and Teller said, is he solo or with a band? I said, he's just solo. He said, go see him. And I see him. And it really was one of those moments that changed my life. So check things out that you may not think you will like. Yeah, I think exploring that is amazing. And I remember, now you must have been a Tommy Lehrer fan, right? Oh, yeah. When I was a kid, I remember my dad playing the Vatican rag, and I just could not get enough of these lyrics. Oh, yeah. Him, Alan Sherman, a lot of those writers. But yeah, it was smart. It wasn't just silly, though there were silly elements to it. And it had that darkness, you know, or the killing pigeons in the park. Yeah, but the musicality, too, was just insane. Well, you write a lot of things. So we've talked a little bit about your one-man show and a little bit about your music. But you also have this middle-grade series called Middle School Bites. And the premise, as I recall, is a teenage vampire well he's 11 years old when it starts and he is just about to start middle school and he's very worried about it because it's going to be seven different teachers and he's got to go to seven different classrooms and have a locker and he's going to have to gym and shower and oh my god all the things and the night before he starts it he gets bitten by a vampire a werewolf and a zombie the three classic biters and he becomes a vam wolf zom so not only does he have to deal with the trials and tribulations of middle school, he has to deal with having all these three personalities being so different, being so weird. It's announced to the school. He doesn't hide it. After, for first, he doesn't know what's going on. Then he figures it out. And then it's announced to the whole school. And they say, we accept all here at Hamilton Middle School. And so they know he's that. Some people are afraid of him. Some people are fascinated. Some people think he's cool. Some people think he's gross. It's affected the way he looks. So it taps into that sort of what kids go through. Right. What an awesome way to be able to talk about finding your identity and dealing with the foibles and the changes of your life. It's a really, really creative way, I guess, to be able to talk about the real problems under the guise of this farce. It's very fast paced. It's very silly. It's very entertaining. Yet at the same time, I do make points about Tom. Like in the beginning, there's this guy he has to share a locker with who he thinks is super weird, weirdest kid in school. But then later, when he realizes he's a Van Wolf Sam, he goes, ah, I'm the weirdest kid in school. So there are little things that are laid into it. And I think a lot of times you can make your points very effectively when you do lay it in an entertaining, funny way. And also trying to get kids to read. There's that whole thing of trying to get non-readers, which is a good thing in a way because it's silly, it's funny, it has monsters in it. Yet at the same time, you do make a point. A lot of middle grade literature and a lot of YA literature is really heavy. Kids going through very traumatic things, which is great. There should be room for everything. Yet at the same time, it's nice to have that where you bring them in and get a non-reader, let's say like, oh, this was fun. I really enjoyed this. There's a lot of humor in it and so forth. I tap into things that I did in school. So yeah, there's four of them. The fourth one comes out August 30th, but it's really been interesting to write that and also deal very differently where I'm only really dealing with notes from one person, Sally Morgridge, my, my editor, who is wonderful, very smart, gives great notes. She came up with the title, Middle School Bites, actually. And by the way, a fantastic nuance, that title, for, for what kids are going through at that time, because it is really the suckiest, I'm putting in quotes, of times in your educational development. Yeah, no, it can be very tough. And I tap into that. And I think one thing, and some of it's lucky, maybe it's skill. Well, and some of it, maybe just because I'm immature, I can really go back and feel what it was like to be that first day of, we called it junior high back then, middle school, and wearing the clothes. And there was this one kid, Billy Barkley, a good friend of mine, 
who had on this shirt that had the collar was like white and then the rest of it was like paisley or whatever. I thought that's the coolest shirt ever. It was very important what shirt you wore, what phrase you used because you were judged and there were girls and there were boys. You're hitting puberty and it sort of taps into all that, having these three personalities. Well, I mean, the werewolf part of it is very much like going through puberty. Well, it is a kid. You have all this energy. You're just this. You can, you're crazy that. And then sometimes you feel like you're cool, like let's say you're a vampire or whatever. But at the same time, you can be very zombie-like where you're this very hungry thing going through the halls. Part of it's like, wow, you do have superhero skills because you can turn to a bat and fly. You can turn into smoke. You have this great strength. But then at the same time, you got to eat blood or some blood substitute. You're always kind of hungry, which is the zombie. So his mom packs some special things and he orders different things at the cafeteria and so forth. What does this person snack on? Is it mealy worms? Well, he's always hungry because he has the zombie element. So that can become a problem. He'll look it over at people and so forth, but he doesn't want to eat. And they go, Mrs. So-and-so, he's going to eat me. He goes, I'm not going to eat you. That'd be gross. He's sort of disgusted that idea. We do find a synthetic blood substitute, but he also likes raw liver smoothies. Yum. Which he said, and it's written first person. He goes, I know that sounds really gross and horrible, but it really tastes good. <laughs> when you're a Van Wolfsam, it tastes very good. So there's a lot of stuff he has to go through and deal with, but it does tap into that going through puberty and being in high school and girls and boys. And also one of the main things is really about friendship is the value of friendship, finding out who your true friends are and realizing, and there's dealing with a bully. And it's that whole thing where this bully who's terrorized them forever, but suddenly Tom has the power to really put this bully in its place, but he has to control himself. So yeah, there's a lot going on. Well, you said earlier you're immature, but aren't we lucky? Because I think your immaturity is what brought the humor to SpongeBob SquarePants and to Jimmy Neutron and to all of these things that you are a little bit of the boy that won't grow up. There's something about having a juvenile sense of humor as an adult, which you then have a place to put. Well, yeah, and I think it allows you the freedom to act silly or do that. I think as you get older, you go, yeah, I'm not trying to impress anybody. I can just do this. I'm singing in the supermarket while I buy the frozen carrots or whatever. But I, I think it's be able to, to turn it on and glom onto that if you're writing through a character that age. And also just have more fun, like the type of stuff that you laugh at or enjoy and have also that enthusiasm for investigating things, looking at new things, seeing new shows. I love when I discover like a new performer or a new book or a new author. It's like Annie Baker, this incredible playwright who won the Pulitzer Prize, who is just fantastic. It's always fun to discover a new writer. I love to read a lot. I go to a lot of theater and sometimes you have to prod yourself, you know, oh, I'm tired. I don't want to see this. It's like, go out and see that. Harvey Firestein, I just read his book and he talks about the thing of learn to say yes to those things. And he had many, many times when he was not going to do, I'm tired. I want to this party. I want to do this. But then he ended up meeting somebody. And so many things have happened to me that way where, okay, let's try this or let's go look in this exhibit. Maybe that I want to see. And then suddenly you're like, oh my God, this is amazing. Inspiration lives everywhere, but it won't be there if you don't go to it. Very, very, very true. And you just try to keep up that enthusiasm. It's not always easy. Sometimes you are tired, but pull yourself up, go out and investigate that thing, read that new book, take that suggestion, watch that thing that you might think you may not like on Netflix or whatever and go, wow. I mean, I love when I discover something that, I mean, that happens all the time, books or whatever I read, like, oh man, why didn't I read Confederacy of Dunces years ago? This is one of the funniest books ever. So great. So here's the thing, you hang on to your sense of play. And I think I've found that with a number of my guests that they give themselves permission to do that, to explore, to be open-minded, to be open-hearted. And sometimes if you go through more of an academic sense of life where you have to do things and you have to reach certain goals and you have to be serious and you can't goof around, but everybody I talk to, there is a permission slip to goof around. In being in that place of play keeps you in a place of discovery, I think. Curiosity, discovery, adventure, abandon, all comes from the idea that you don't restrict your thinking process. So you cover the territory from, let's say, 
the juvenile sense of humor from the YA book thing, but also you have an alter ego that I don't want to leave out today because your character, Billy the Mime, and this is the time where we have to make the warning for the kids listening, but Billy the Mime is this great character, and I guess I would have you describe Billy because Billy is a proper mime, but the sketches he does and the scenes he does are always, I would call them controversial or subversive or daring that range from titles that have something for Michael Jackson or Bill Cosby or the Kennedy assassination. The minute you see the title of one of these things, you go, oh, he's not really going to do this, is he? So tell me one where the idea came from and then maybe give us a little tour through the titles of some of these scenes because Billy has become a cult figure at fringe festivals and all the offbeat alternative performance spaces. For a brief shining moment, to quote from Camelot, mine was kind of cool, very briefly, maybe in the 70s. And I actually did it. I'm self-taught. I read Richmond Shepard's book and studied. I went and saw every mime show possible, studied Robert Shields, Marceau, saw Marceau many times. I attended a three-day masterclass with Marceau, but it was mostly him lecturing and doing things. So I'm really self-taught. How does a guy like Marceau lecture? He was quite a talker. So I learned how to do it. I did it on the street. And when I first did assemblies, I was literally doing a mime show. First, I did all Marceau routines. Then I made up my own. Did it for a while, then got tired of it. But then it became awful. I mean, I hate mimes, most of them, 99% of them. They're either pretentious or they have incredible technique, but no content. Or maybe they have something, but you don't know what the hell they're doing. There's no technique. And anyone would just slap on white face and go around in a park and bug people and bother to imitate them. That's not really what it is. So I'm with all you people. I hate mimes, most of them. Oh, now you're going to turn mimes against this show. Outspoken mimes are going to be calling in. Right. They're going to be protests. So anyway, years later, I was doing this show called Talent Show, and I had this one section where I thought, what if there's a mime who is technically very adept but has no idea the bad taste in which his routines are? So... The first routine I did was called JFK Jr. We Hardly Knew Ye, which was about JFK as a kid, with the famous saluting at the Kennedy uh, funeral of his father, to growing up, to failing the bar three times, having to pass the bar three times before he did that. That was difficult to show. And then dying in the plane crash. But anyway, and being handsome and throwing footballs around. And I did it as part of the show, and that was the best part of the whole show. And I thought, wow, I should really try this. So I came up with the 12 routines initially. And I had also done Billy in a movie called The Aristocrats, which is a documentary Penn Jillette and Paul Provenza did about the dirtiest joke. And I thought, wow, what if I did it as a mime? So we shot it on the Venice boardwalk and I did the routine. So that movie was about to come out and I thought, if I'm going to do it, I should do it now. So I came up with like a dozen routines and spent a lot of time writing them like scripts, then rehearsing them over and over and over, finding the music. But the routines were things like Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, A Night at Monticello. So you were seeing Thomas Jefferson entertaining his guests, playing the violin, pouring wine from his big collection, reading, being the sophisticated intellectual. But then during the party, he would sneak off and have sex with Sally Hemings. And, and done very precisely, very specifically, Nothing was left up to the imagination, but that was the whole point, was to make a point. So it was that. It was called a day called 9-11. There was a meeting with Harvey Weinstein, drinks with Bill Cosby. I did one about Karen Carpenter, World War II, where I did all of World War II in like four and a half minutes. There was Roman Polanski and the 13-year-old girl. It wasn't just to be shocking. It was to show this, but at the same time, make a point. And when I did them... And they, they, you know, you had to be understood. There's a great Woody Allen joke where he goes to see a mime and he goes, you know, I don't know. He was either, you know, conducting the Boston Philharmonic or, you know, knitting a sweater. You've got to be clear and focused. So it, it has to be very precise and not boring. Back to our Noel Coward quote. So I worked really hard on these things and people responded to it. They were shocked. They were like, you'd hear gasps when I would hold up the sign that said dinner with Jeffrey Dahmer. And it, oh my God, what are they going to do? And we'd start simple. I would build up in intensity as they went. And I had this just great reaction. Some people were shocked. It wasn't for everybody. The show wasn't for everybody. One time a woman brought young 
children, you know, 10, 11. And we just said, you have to take them out. This is not appropriate for them because I didn't want to do that. And I knew she would be uncomfortable. So did it there. And then at the Sacred Fools Theater, Dean Cameron produced it. We did it there and sort of hit. Then I started doing it at Upright Citizens Brigade. I ended up doing it at the Edinburgh Festival. I did it off off Broadway in New York at the Flea Theater. And first I did the New York Fringe Festival. We were just lucky that a New York Times reviewer came. Jason Zinneman really loved it, gave us a good review. That led to all sorts of other things. And it ended up coming in the run, the years I did it, over like 40 routines because things would happen. And then I would do, there were some that weren't. I do the history of art in about, I think, eight minutes where it starts off with caveman art and ends with Banksy. So there were ones you had offset. So you didn't just go heavy, heavy, heavy. Though it was fun, even though they were very dark, even in interesting in the one called They Call 9-11, because I played two people, one of the terrorists getting on the plane and a person just going to work. And at one point, the terrorist sits down, puts his seatbelt on and reaches up and turns the air on, you know, those little round things that bring in the air. And I never thought that was funny. It was just a thing to really place. That's what people do. And we'd always get this uncomfortable laugh, which I thought was so interesting. It was a laugh of sort of identification. You know, the other thing that seems interesting about that moment is that it seems routine, like he wants to be comfortable, even though he knows what's coming. Yeah, or he was nervous. And so it's like, I'm nervous, I'm going to turn this thing on. And then, yeah, it ends with the thing hitting and crashing and ends up with him, as it is in the Islam religion, then going up and having sex with all the many, many virgins and counting them and doing them. So it was like to make that point at the end, like, well, maybe this is why these people did that. They were so passionate about doing this. But anyway, it's a crazy nutty show. And at first I kept the identity secret and then eventually it came out. But it was so interesting to explore and go back to doing something I hadn't done for like, Jesus, 25, 30 years and do it again, but in a very different way. But even when I went to like Upright Citizens Brigade in LA and also in New York, there was an advantage to be brutally honest that most people had never seen a mime show, a full mime show. Most people hated mime, understandably. I'm right there with you because they're boring and pretentious and annoying. I got to admit, the bar, I don't say this to most people, the bar was very low. And so their expectations were like, what is this? How is this? He's going to do what? But then the fact, if it is done, and there are some ones that are really good. Dr. Brown, uh, Phil Burgers is a fantastic mime. There are great people who do really good stuff. Shields is great. Marceau was great. Dave McCarron was a really great mime. There are good, but there's just very, very few because it's very hard to do. <laughs> I will say this. You allowed yourself to re-explore a skill set that you had but from a new perspective, and it brought you joy to be using pantomime skills to tell a story in a different way, and in some ways mock the art. Going in, it was a low expectation. It was introducing people who'd never seen a show like that and going, wow, you really can do a story. It can be moving. I remember a friend of mine said, boy, you know, at the end of World War II, it was really moving. And I honestly, I was surprised because I thought, wow, it's this very dark humor. I knew there would be some laughs and stuff like that, but I had forgotten that mime, when done well, it can be very moving. And that was the thing, like I did the Karen Carpenter routine and there was some dark humor and so forth. It was playing Karen and him and dealing with anorexia nervosa and all that, which is a horrible disease. There was a dark laughter at even like with Roman Polanski and the 13 year old girl or Phil Spector. Oh, and I also did Whitney Houston's Last Bath. Same thing at that, very dark humor thing, but at the end she dies, she goes down and she sings. And it would hit like the sadness where you'd feel the audience go like, okay, he's making this point, but oh, you know, what a tragic thing that happened. So it was, it was going back to a skill set that I had that I'd really worked very hard on a long time ago, then brought it back. It's like getting on a bicycle and then discovering, wow, you can do it in this completely different way. But I was sort of jumping off a ledge there. It could have been awful. <laughs> it could have been like, this is boring. This sucks. But I worked very hard to not make it. I really am fascinated and sort of pleased with the evolution that Billy the Mime is also an artist because I love the thing that you created, Billy the Mime's Moving Art Gallery. And if you can tell me a little bit how it started, I mean, you were painting replicas of Billy's simple face. Yeah, I'm not an artist. My father was a fine artist. That's what he did for a living, advertising art and that. Amazing stuff in the Grant Wood, Andrew Wyeth style of paint. I could not draw at all, but I loved art. 
when I went to see Marcel Marceau in his souvenir program, he was a painter, like what they call a Sunday painter, very influenced by Chagall. But the funny thing when I noticed in the program of all the paintings he would have, every single one was of himself. Every single was Bip, his character. Bip flies over Paris. Bip with all the famous clowns. Bip, Bip, Bip. And so when I did my first show of Billy the Mime at Sacred Fools, I said, I got to do like the art of Billy and have an exhibit in the lobby. So I did that very simple, very folk art, art brute, outsider art type style because, hey, folks, I can't paint very well. Were those paintings for sale or just an exhibit? Oh, yeah, they were for sale. Price is very reasonable, but they were up in the thing. But I thought, oh, that would be funny when people come in and see that. First show I did, the stage manager came back for it and said, uh, Steve, are you going to do any more of those paintings? I said, oh, I don't know. It took so long time. He said, well, I think you sold every single one. <laughs> so I had to paint some more doing that. And then I had this idea, influenced by Banksy, the great street artist, to do more Billy art, have a moving art gallery. It would be in my car. I'd lounge on Facebook. I'm in this area with Steve, the art consultant who was there selling them. I'd wear a suit. And I just started appearing in different parts of LA. Then I started putting them in art museums all around the world, literally. Right, but explain to them what you mean by putting them in art museums. Well, what I would do is I would go in and I would find a place to hang them, sometimes in the bathroom at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. I went into the bathroom and I'd have a painting, a very simple Billy holding like a sign, like for his routines. And then on the sign, it said, I stole this from the Museum of Modern Art. And I would put it up and then sneak out and then someone would discover it. I also put them in shops at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I put them in the LA County Art Museum, the Broad, the Gutenberg. Sometimes I put them in the shops in like with all the little prints of whatever famous artists they have there among the Andrew Warhol or this, that. There would be a Billy painting that said, I stole this from Lackmar. I stole this from the Whitney. And I would then sometimes go and sit and watch people looking and they'd pick it up and go, what? And of course there was no barcode on it you could take it. It was kind of like reverse shoplifting because I would be very nervous putting something in these thoughts because I wouldn't want to be seen. And I sometimes I put them literally in the museum. They had a outsider art exhibit and I painted one at this gallery and it said, this is not a Banksy. And I put it in the gallery. Then I left. They saw it later. Another, this guy went in with a, his camera on his phone, went into the gallery and went up to the guy who owned it and said, excuse me, I hear you have a Billy the Mime. The guy goes, what? I hear you have a Billy the Mime painting. Oh, well, it's a kind of a joke. Well, could I see it? And they had take, they had discovered it and they had put it up in their office behind the desk. And so then the guy went and he's filming it with the guy's face pixelated out. He goes, well, can I buy this? And the guy goes, it's not for sale. He goes, well, I want to make an offer. I want to buy this. Well, no, I'm sorry. I, I can't sell it. So then later I went in with a friend of mine to see another exhibit several months later and said that and said, I hear you have a Billy the Mime here. <laughs> and I had this whole conversation with this woman. She goes, oh, yeah, I don't know. It's a joke or something that's up there. And I go, could I buy it? She goes, oh, I'm sorry, we can't sell it. That was bizarre. So I've had a great amount of fun. I once painted a door, put it out in front of the L.A. County Art Museum and said I stole this a whole actual size door and parked across the street and watched a guy come. And I announced on Facebook, there it was, a guy came with his truck and I videotaped him or shot him, filmed it, putting the thing in his truck. So it started off as part of the joke of Billy the Mime, then turned into this whole thing. And it became very fun. Even just the hang when I would rent like a rider truck and put paintings and like announce there it was and do paintings that go like, I traded this painting for a box of donuts. And a friend of mine, came, Lindsay came with a box of donuts and I gave her the painting that did that. And the paintings were priced to sell. Billy's motto was Billy's Moving Art Gallery, bringing art to the masses at affordable prices since 2014. Well, I love it. I love that it's playful. I love that it's art, but it's also a happening. And it really has taken off in other ways. You do what you want with it. I love watching on Facebook and other places where you'll find a white space somewhere in some other piece of advertising or art and you will put your iconic Billy face in there. And it's kind of fun to watch and figure out. It's like a Hirschfeld signature in a way. You gotta find it. Right, it is fun. It's that playful thing. It's as I painted a big giant rock on 
bar I'm going over into Hollywood and shot these videos with me, Steve. I'm your art consultant. We've discovered this amazing thing. What does it mean? And now it's recently been graffitied. So I may do a whole bit where we're like going to restore it and see if we can get Billy to restore it. But it's fun. To me, it's just fun. I'm not making my living that way. And so I'm able to do it. And it's just nutty. I had no clue that. And we've done sales. I mean, people have bought the art. We did an auction at Scott Neary's Booby Trap where people performed for four minutes. I went on as Billy, painted the painting, and then had a live auction right there. And a guy ended up buying it. Oh, I love it. Listen, there's so much we can't even get to today, but you're performing at Edinburgh Fringe Festival, which is fascinating to me. Your collaboration with Palabolas Dance Company on that full evening show, Shadowland. And I know we both have an affection for the Music Man. Music Man is what got me into show business. I saw my grandfather, who was from Iowa, played me the Broadway cast album for his film love. I hadn't even seen the movie. I memorized the whole thing and like would lip sync it. Then I saw the movie and my mind was blown. I just, I wanted to be Robert Preston. I wanted to be the Music Man. So I believe I literally have the world's largest Music Man collection. <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of items, including one of the 76 trombones from the movie, which is embossed and made specially for the Warner Brothers production of that. I have one of the uniforms with a big red stripe running down and a hat, opening night program, sign, all sorts of signed stuff. I am looking right now in my office. I have Robert Preston's waste paper basket, which I got at his estate sale. Do you have a salesman's case or something? Oh, that's the holy grail. Man, I don't know what happened to the suitcase, either the original Broadway production or the movie. I missed in an auction the jacket he has that he turns inside out and there's a band uniform. Oh, that's cool. And because we're not talking about The Wizard of Oz or Casablanca or Gone with the Wind, it was affordable. I could have bought it. And somehow, oh, I didn't know it was happening. TCM at an auction and I missed it. The Holy Grail is a suitcase that says Professor Hill. I've never heard. I don't know what happened to that. So have you spent any time in Mason City, Iowa? I haven't, but I want to go because they have the Music Man Mall. They have the museum and so forth. And when I die, which hope isn't for a long time, I've told my sons, I said, donate my collection to that museum. Because I have some very, very cool, very unique things. I have one of the strangest albums when Meredith Wilson, who did over 40 drafts of The Music Man, there's a wonderful book called But He Doesn't Know the Territory, which is about how he created it. If you're interested in writing musicals, read that book. He would go around with his wife, Winnie, they would sing the songs to do backers auditions. And he actually recorded what that was like. And I have the album signed by them. What a nutty album to put out. And I've heard that it's fascinating pitch. He's playing the piano. They're in little house party situations, playing all the characters, singing the songs. I mean, what a lesson in salesmanship. And in so many ways, him being Harold Hill with his own product. And when you go to Mason City, Iowa, there is the boyhood home of Meredith Wilson. There's the footbridge that they sing about. And the town itself is like the gazebo. They celebrate it in such a way that it is a step back in time. The place to stay, there's the Frank Lloyd Wright Hotel. It's the last hotel of rights that's right there in the heart of the city. It's a, actually, if this is an unpaid tourism thing for Mason City, Iowa, there's some awesome, fun nostalgia in that town. I've never been there, which I have to go, and I've never been to Graceland. Sorry. How is it possible that you've never been? I know, I know, I know, I know. But I think actually I'm going to be going to Graceland next year because my son is now working in Nashville there. It's only three hours away. But yeah, I've got to get there. You know, do it now. Don't put it off, folks. You have been a longtime inspiration. I appreciate the insights and the whimsy and the wonder that you bring to your work and that you share with all of us. And I always look forward to the next chapter in your story. Well, who knows? Well, thank you very much. It's always a delight to talk to Pat Hazel. Oh my God. And well, I got to tell you, my son James thinks, he goes, Pat Hazel might be the funniest person I know. And trust me, my son is very particular. <laughs> the one night we ate at either Stockdale's or Bertano's, <laughs> somebody said something where Gary swore because something happened. You went, oh, not in front of the chicken. He still quotes that joke, but. Uh, wait, what was the quote? <laughs> Gary was heading the chicken and like messed up something. And he went, oh, God damn it. Or said something like that. And you went, oh, not in front of the chicken. And it was a joke perfectly delivered. He still quotes that joke. He still uses that joke. Well, good. I bequeath that joke to your son. <laughs> oh, trust me. He already took it and stole it. But I love chatting with you and watching the things you do. And these things have been fabulous because 
you're doing archival stuff of, I'm like sub famous of really big movers and shakers that do things. And I'm impressed. I go, geez, how do you get him on? Oh, that's right. He worked with him. I consider you to be the top of my sub famous totem pole. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. Well, a blast, pal. Just keep being funny and keep writing every day. And we'll be here to watch and listen and buy the art. Okay. Thanks, Pat. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will always hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, with sound editing under the steady hand of Marcus Siniskalki. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help us grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun. As in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty. Your call.